You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. As anyone who's been paying attention to the Republican Presidential sweepstakes for 2012, my old college roommate. People don't know that about us, but we actually went to college together. We bunked together for a very long time. My old college roommate, Rick Santorum, very likely running for president, definitely running for president. He's not going to perhaps, you know, unlikely to win the nomination, likely to win Iowa because everyone in Iowa, according to the New York Times uh, front page story last week, has completely lost their minds. Uh, unlikely to win the nomination, but this race in 2012 really isn't about winning uh, anything but the nomination and because uh, they're certainly not going to take the presidency away from Barack Obama with a Michelle Bachman, a Sarah Palin, a Rick Santorum, or a Mike Huckabee. This is just about leveraging the Republican nomination and the nomination process uh, for fresh gigs on Fox News over the next four years. Fresh well-paid gigs on Fox News over the next four years. So let's not be deluded about what's going on on the Republican side. That's why there aren't really any serious Republicans running for president. Anyway, Rick Santorum running for president. And here's what he had to say recently about the non-existent Social Security crisis. Social Security is completely solvent. Don't fall for that. My apologies to Canada. We're going to talk about American politics for a minute. Here's Rick in full froth this week about Social Security. The former Pennsylvania senator, former because he lost by 18 fucking points, former Pennsylvania senator and potential presidential candidate was asked about Social Security during an interview. He says the system has design flaws. Uh, for Republicans, the design flaw in Social Security is it doesn't let old people starve to death. The system has design flaws, but the reason it is in big trouble is that there aren't enough workers to support retirees. He blamed that on what he called the nation's abortion culture. He says that culture, coupled with policies that do not support families, deny America what it needs, more people. You know, I read that and, you know, we have an abortion culture. People get abortions. Uh, it is actually a constitutionally protected right and people are going to continue to get abortions, whether Rick Santorum thinks that's good for Social Security or bad for Social Security. So we really can't do much about that. And, you know, I think we have pretty family-fucking-friendly policies in this country. And if people aren't having more babies besides the Duggars, there's not much we can do about that. And, you know, just, you know, Rick Santorum's comments had me up late worried about Social Security. And, God, if only there were a large country adjacent to ours that was home to a lot of people who desperately wanted to come to the United States to live and work – and if the people in this hypothetically adjacent-ish country tended to have large families and tended to be religious, perhaps Catholic, pseudo-social conservatives would no doubt create a path to citizenship for these folks from this hypothetical country, perhaps to our south, because America needs more people. Right, Rick? More people. This hypothetical country actually exists, of course. It's called Mexico. And 12 to 20 million of those people are already in this country that's so desperately in need of more people because Americans keep aborting the next generation of Social Security retiree supporters. Uh, but those people aren't good enough, it seems, for Rick Santorum and the Republican Party, which wants to do everything it can to block things like the DREAM Act and other ways for these 12 to 20 million more people 
to become U.S. citizens because, of course, those people from Mexico are the wrong color people for Rick Santorum. Anyway, and the Republican Party. Your call's after this. This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com, where you can find over 18,000 adult entertainment products for every lifestyle. To receive 50% off most any item, plus three adult DVDs, plus an extra gift, plus free shipping, visit AdamandEve.com and enter SAVAGE at checkout. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 26-year-old male over in the uh, Midwest, Milwaukee area. My problem's probably pretty tame compared to most people's problems of yours, but um, it's still a problem nonetheless, so I'm hoping you can help me out. Uh, my problem is simply that uh, I guess I have no game uh, is what they refer to it as, or I just can't get any women uh, interested in me, or if they are, I can never see any signs. Uh, I'll try to give you some background. Uh, I'm 26 years old. I've been in one really serious relationship. Uh, we were dating for about two years uh, before that fizzled out. Uh, but besides her, uh, I really never had a real relationship, I would say, prior to that. Um, a couple of people that I hooked up with, uh, but nothing like serious boyfriend-girlfriend thing. And with my ex, it was kind of obvious that she was interested, so I was able to put some moves on her. And, but um, for the most part, I have a hard time uh, figuring out anything involving women. Um, I work... I don't have a lot of places to meet them, I suppose, is the problem. Uh, I've exhausted pretty much every online resource. and uh, tried eHarmony, tried, you know, Match.com. You name it, I've tried it. Um, maybe part of it is, I know you've, you've criticized people for overthinking things, and I might be one of those people that thinks a bit logistically, but I'm always keeping score in my head. Um, I don't know. I just feel like I have a lot to offer. I'm a pretty, I'm not a horrible-looking guy. I'd send you a picture if I could. Um, you know, certainly not unattractive, not the greatest looking, but um, seems to be no reason why uh, women wouldn't be interested. But, you know, one conversation is all it usually takes for me to either immediately be in a, in a friend zone or uh, completely not interested mode. I get a lot of calls like this, and I'm going to treat yours as sort of a general question before I get down to the specifics of your predicament. People call and say, I got no game. I can't get laid. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Dan, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I can't tell you what you're doing wrong because I can't see what you're doing. I also can't smell you. I can't look between your teeth and see if there's green fungus growing there. Uh, you know, I, I once spoke to a guy I met actually in person who said that, you know, despite having put personal ads up on a, a few gay websites, he wasn't having any luck and no one was responding to his ads. And I said, well, what's your ad? And we went online. I had my laptop with me. He was in a cafe when he came and talked to me. Some people have no boundaries. And we looked at his uh, personal ads, and in all of them he was posing with his samurai sword collection. And I looked at him and said, you look like a serial killer. In every one of these shots, you are brandishing a samurai sword over your head, off to your side, shirtless. You're hot, but you look fucking crazy. In these pictures. And it's not that you can't have a samurai sword collection and that can't be a passion of yours. Japanese culture can't be a passion of yours. But you don't seem to have the sense to realize that anybody coming into your personal ad and seeing eight shots of a guy with a samurai sword unsheathed and every shot in an about to cut your head off pose is either about to cut your head off or doesn't have any judgment or sense. And for that reason, they're disqualified. 
uh, as a potential love interest because they look psychotically violent or they just look psychotically fucking clueless because nobody who actually wanted to hear from anybody would lard their ad with those photos. But it was only because I met that guy in person that I was able to say, I understand you have a passion for samurai swords. Take all these pictures down. Take all new pictures and uh, you'll have some luck. I can't see your ads. I'm not watching you in a bar. I don't know how you talk to women. I don't know. I can't tell you what you're doing wrong. Your friends can tell you what you're doing wrong. And they very well could know what you're doing wrong. They could have very detailed opinions and be very articulate with each other when you're out of earshot about what exactly you're doing wrong. And you have to invite them to level with you, even if it levels you to hear it, even if it fucking knocks you down for a while to hear it. It might help. Now, about your specific case, Koala, you're 26 years old. You're in a two-year relationship. You've gotten laid a handful of times. You're actually not doing too bad. I've heard from plenty of guys your age who say they have no game who quite literally have had no game. They've gotten no pussy, never had a girlfriend, never been kissed, never been laid, uh, and they are doing apparently much wronger things than you're doing. But you're frustrated and you need to change your approach because it isn't, you know, raining vagina quite the way you'd like it to rain vagina. So I would encourage you to go to your friends, have them peruse your ad, have them look at your ad. Some of these women who've landed in the friend zone, have them critique your ad, tell you what it is that's in there that you're doing wrong, or just really invite them to throw acid on you and tell you exactly what it is about your approach your conversational style, the way you dress, your personal hygiene, whatever it is. Going for girls who are way the fuck out of your league and passing over girls who are unconventionally attractive and in your league, maybe that's it. But your friends and the people around you are going to have a better idea of what the problem is than I am. Good luck. Um, hello, Mr. Savage. I'm gay. I live in the suburbs in a southern state. Um, I would, I'm 18. Uh, I would like to thank you for the It Gets Better project. Um, the messages from the videos have been more inspirational and hopeful and helpful than, uh, I don't know, anything any doctor told me in my weeks in the suicide psychiatric ward for the related reason. So thank you very much. I'm trying to focus on the future. So college next year, soon. Um, frankly, though, I'm kind of frightened about college. I feel that all the straighties will have had since sixth grade to know how to flirt and talk and kiss and everything. And I've never spoken to or even known anyone openly gay before. So, I mean, there's really no one I can ask aside from you. I'm not out of school. I am with my parents, but I'm just glad they haven't thrown me out. So that's my motivation for contacting you. Um, what am I going to do? Tips, pointers, recommendations. Um, I'm pretty afraid that I'll just go crazy being repressed and lonely for so long and do something absolutely stupid. Um, I know nothing. I don't know what to do, what to avoid. So kind of scary. Um, any help that you would, that you could offer would be phenomenal. I wish you had left a phone number. I want to reassure you, though, that you're not alone, that a lot of gay kids arrive at college without ever having been kissed, without ever having dated, all that stuff the straight kids learned how to do in middle school, starting in middle school, middle school dances, sixth grade, there you are. In 12th grade, 
not having done any of it because you're gay. And even if you had grown up in a place where you could be gay and out in school, odds are you still wouldn't have been able to do much of that because we're so thinly distributed. We're such a tiny percentage of the population that odds are there wouldn't have been any other gay kids in your school for you to date. And if there were one or two other gay kids, the odds that then you would be attracted to those kids uh, who were also gay would have been slim. Just because there's one other gay kid in your school doesn't mean you're going to be compatible or interested or attracted to each other romantically. So most gay kids arrive at college or arrive at 18 and you know out in life, if not in college, really inexperienced. And we tend to make the mistakes that other kids make in middle school and with a lot of parental supervision. We tend to make those mistakes in college with credit cards and not much parental supervision or oversight. And so we can get into a lot more trouble because we have a lot more autonomy. It's hard for kids, not that they don't do it, but it's harder for straight kids in middle school and uh, early on in high school to get in a lot of trouble uh, romantically, sexually, although they certainly do do it uh, and can do it. But it's a little more difficult. They're flying with a bit more of a net than you'll be flying with when you get to college. What you need to do is give yourself permission to let all that be true because that's all true. And it's not just true for you. It's going to be true for most of the gays and lesbians uh, who are 18, most of the gay and lesbian freshmen and sophomores and juniors that you're going to meet when you head off to college. What trips people up often is when they pretend to know more, be more sophisticated, have more experience than they have because they feel insecure about lacking the kind of you know, dating, kissing, romantic experience that their straight peers have. And you just have to be upfront and unashamed about being a little naive and inexperienced because that's who you are. That's what you are. Uh, and that is, again, not uncommon for gays and lesbians and bisexuals and transgender who are your age, who are 18, because we don't have the same support to date in middle school and high school that our straight peers do and did, and because even if we did, again, it's unlikely that there would be someone at your middle school or high school that you were interested in dating. How do you not go crazy? How do you not be stupid? By every step of the way, reminding yourself that you don't want to be crazy and you don't want to make stupid mistakes. Find an older gay or lesbian person who isn't interested in you sexually, who can offer you some advice, who can help you spot the bad guys, help you spot the people who although attractive uh, as they may be, don't have your best interests at heart or aren't you know, good witches, they're bad witches, and steer you away from them. And take it slow. Take it slow. There is no rush. Anybody that you meet out at a dance, anybody you meet out at a bar, anybody you meet in a class or on Adam for Adam or Dudes Nude or Recon or anywhere else, Grinder, anyone who's interested in you in that moment will be interested in you in a day or two days. You can draw it out until you have a better sense of who that person is. You can insist on coffee and a meeting and a drink and conversation before there's any kissing or drop trousers or anything else. And if they're in a rush to get into your pants, they're really not interested in you. They're interested in dick. And there's plenty of dick out there to be had and they don't have to have yours if you're not comfortable sharing yours with them under that kind of rushed uh, circumstance. Sustain so your ground. 
be naive, be inexperienced. What else can you be? That's what you are. And insist on taking it slow because you don't want to be crazy and you don't want to be stupid. And it's when people who don't know what they're doing rush in or jump into the fast lane or the deep end of the pool, that's when people get hurt. That's when things go crazy. That's when people go without condoms. That's when people wind up with boyfriends that are no good for them uh, because they can't tell the difference. And you know, were to any parents of gay kids out there who might be listening, sometimes it's hard when your kid comes out of the closet uh, and you, you feel like you want to be supportive but you really can't deal with the whole same-sex intimacy dating thing in the same way that you can deal with your straight children uh, and their first relationships and dating. And, you know, mom takes her daughter off to Planned Parenthood and gets her the pill and has long conversations with her and the daughter knows that she can go to mom and say, my boyfriend's saying this, my boyfriend's saying that, and mom will hear her out without making disgusted, ew, yuck, straight sex faces and offer her her advice because she's been there. She was 16 and dating and becoming sexually active once too. You really have to do the same thing for your gay kids. You really have to be a sounding board for them. Uh, it's not enough to say, I love you, but I don't want to hear about it, or I love you and I can't deal with the mental images that these conversations about intimacy and sex are bringing up, so please don't talk to me about it. You have to say, I love you and I want to hear all about your relationship. I want to hear about your boyfriend. If you have concerns, please come to me. Here are condoms. Here's how to use them. And you have to be as up in their grill and involved and meddlesome with your gay kids as you are with your straight kids because, again, they can get into a lot more trouble. Because when they become sexually active, when we become sexually active, it tends to be a little later in life, tends to be a little more autonomy, a little more anonymity, out from under mom and dad's nose, and much, much more can go wrong and much, much more serious things can go wrong. So speaking of gay kids, speaking of the high school experience, joining us now from New York on the phone, Chris Hampton, who is the youth and program strategist of the ACLU LGBT Project. Hey there, Chris. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. There are two things I want to talk to you about today. But first, I want to say, you know, the It Gets Better project uh, that we launched right here on the podcast. The book is out. I've been on tour for it. I got to meet Chris in New York last week at the kickoff reading. One of the beneficiaries of the project, you know, we've raised thousands and thousands of dollars. One of the beneficiaries is the ACLU, you know, the Trevor Project. Everybody knows about it. They're there to talk kids off the ledge who are suicidal. Glisten, we've also given money to. And they're there to help improve things in high school so there are fewer kids on the ledge. And the ACLU is very close to my heart because I consider myself a bit of an ass kicker. And the ACLU is there when needed to come down and kick some fucking ass in American high schools on behalf of LGBT youth. Every day you hear about it. You hear about a school where some kid was sent home because he's wearing a rainbow bracelet. And you read the story and you get down to the 10th paragraph and there's the ACLU and the school back down apologized, instituted new policies because the ACLU stepped in on behalf of some queer 14-year-old that you've never heard of and threatened to sue and meant it when they threatened. Uh, and that's why the ACLU is one of the beneficiaries of the It Gets Better project. Um, and so, Chris, again, this happened just this week. Lesbian, a lesbian wanted to go to uh, prom in a tux. God fucking forbid. What happened? Homa, Louisiana, I think. Homo, <laughs> Homo, Louisiana? It's just a couple letters off from it, yeah. <laughs> My um, kind of town, Homo, Louisiana is. Go ahead. Uh, her name is Monique Verdon, and she's an awesome, awesome kid. She's, uh, 
she's involved in every damn thing at the school. She's like soccer and softball and powerlifting, and she plays roller derby outside of school, and she's like at the history club and student council. I mean, just like she's a great kid. Um, you know, and all those, the powerlifting and softball and everything like that, nobody was shocked when she came out when she was 13. Um, you know, Just, that, that, she, that blows my mind. You know, I knew I was gay when I was 13, roughly. Uh, but the idea that there are kids out there in places like Homo, Louisiana, who are coming out at age 13 is just staggering to me. Yeah, me too. I, I wasn't dealing in high school. And the bravery that that represents and, and the sea change in the culture. Anyway, she comes out at 13. A few years later, she's a senior. She, yeah, she's a senior. She's been wearing, I mean, I asked her, like, what's the typical thing for her to wear at school every day? And she said cargo shorts and an American Eagle t-shirt, you know. So she's she's been wearing very boyish clothes all along. It's never been an issue. No problems from students, no problems from teachers. And then the principal tells, and she wore a suit to prom last year. But, uh, you know, this year the principal says, I don't want her in a prom. I don't want that at my at my prom. Doesn't want a girl in a tux at a prom because what's going to happen? God's going to send a torme- tornado? Yeah, well, the, 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 the paraphrased quote, you know, I don't know absolutely for certain because it was kind of relayed to Monique, but uh, was that, you know, he didn't want that crap at his prom. And I was like, what crap? Gay kids are that crap? You know, and so. so what did the ACLU do when they heard about this? This is the sort of thing that seems minor on the surface, but it's the kind of thing that creates a hostile environment where gay kids feel like they're not a part of the school, not a part of the culture, not welcome, not supported. And what did the ACLU do when you heard about this case? Um, there were a million emails back and forth because it was over the weekend and prom is next weekend. And then uh, we sent a letter Monday morning to the school explaining um, you know, her free expression, how her free expression rights um, protect her ability to go to prom in a tux. And um, we heard back from the school within a couple hours that they were backing down. It's a beautiful thing. It was great. That was and, a nice little way to have our Monday go. You know? And it doesn't always rise to that. You know, Constance McMillan was a client of the ACLU. You guys, you guys dug a grave and uh, Constance McMillan's high school decided that they would jump into it. But that this case didn't go to court. There's not going to be a trial. There's not going to be a huge uh, newspaper sort of uh, report about it because you solved it with a letter. Yeah, and today there's a picture in the uh, uh, in the local paper, the Huma Courier, of her, you know, picking up her tuxedo and getting her final fitting, and that's like the front page of the local paper. Awesome. And God yeah. has not obliterated Louisiana, has not wiped it off the map. Everyone's fine. The straight kids can still be straight kids. The Christian kids can still be Christian kids. Everybody can go to prom, and this girl can wear a tux if that's what she wants to do. And it's not taking anything away from anybody else, is it? At all. No, I don't think so. So God bless the ACLU. This is the reason the ACLU is one of the beneficiaries of the It Gets Better project. And I also wanted to have you on today, Chris, to talk about another project that really gets to, you know, really touches on, overlaps with uh, what the It Gets Better project is about that the ACLU is running right now called Don't Filter Me. Can you fill us yes. in about that? Um, we had, a couple years ago, we had a lawsuit in Tennessee um, in which it first came about a student came to us because he had been trying to search for scholarship information for LGBT students um, and found that they were all, all these sites were blocked. Um, and then he just got curious and started checking out, like, PFOX and People Can Change and all these, you know, pray away the gay sites. And none of those were blocked. 
so we sued his school and a, a couple other schools in Tennessee, and the schools very quickly settled. And we sort of suspected at that point that this was a more widespread problem, but we weren't sure how we would handle the flood of information from schools all over the country um, if, if we really put it out there that we were looking for this. And then this semester, we got some volunteers from the uh, from Yale Law School, some students who wanted, uh, with their LGBT litigation clinic, asked if they could do anything to help us out. And so we, uh, working with those Yale students as volunteers, um, really kind of put out, you know, we put out a YouTube video and a little forum online and just kind of encouraging people. And it's starting to pick up. And we've heard from, we've heard from students at like 25 different stu- schools in 17 different states so far that have, you know, school web filters that block some or all gay sites, including the It Gets Better Project, by the way, um, and, you know, don't block the Pray Away the Gay sites. So we're going after them. We're doing a lot of letters, lots of letters this week. And a letter from the ACLU can really cause the administration of a high school or a school board to drop a load in their trousers, their collective trousers, which is why we should support the ACLU. So you have these schools who are filtering out gay neutral, gay positive, pro-gay websites, and allowing uh, these rabidly anti-gay quack quack reparative therapy websites and really psychically, spiritually abusive, lying websites to kind of leap out and attack the queer students. Uh, that, for me, that's just, that's kind of abuse. That is cyberbullying on a part of the school to filter out the info that queer kids might need that's affirming and allow the anti-gay shit to just pour out of their computers. Yeah. So the next step is, um, well, we did on um, earlier this week, we, we we're sending demand letters to the schools that we have where we have proof that they definitely are blocking these sites where the students got screen captures for us and showed us, you know, so we have like something we can actually show them if we have to. Um, and then lots of other schools were just doing, you know, um, requests for information under whatever their state's, you know, Open Records Act is. Um, and the schools that we've sent demand letters to so far already, they both, uh, there were two schools that we sent demand letters to the other day. They both backed down the same day when they received it. And, you know, so we're hoping that just, you know, usually getting an Open Records rea- request from the ACLU kind of tells them something. So, um, and we're just hoping more people re- will report to us, you know, what, you know, school employees or students really, you know, we don't necessarily have to use your name to talk to your school about what the fil- what the filters are. Um, so, you know, we're just hoping folks who have access to public school computers will uh, get in touch with us if their schools are blocking these sites. And get those screen grabs. Yeah. Can I give a URL? Yes, please. Um, there's uh, the we have a little online form people can fill out, and it also lists the, the sites that we'd like people to test. And it's at action.aclu.org slash don't filter me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Chris Hampton, Youth and Program Strategist for the ACLU's LGBT Project. Thanks again for all you guys do at the ACLU for Queer Youth. Thanks for all that you guys have done to support us. We really appreciate it. Looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only. You'll get 50% off just about any item. And that's not all. There's more. 
You'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free extra gift plus free shipping on your entire order. Check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 28-year-old male, married, straight. And um, when I first met my wife in college, uh, she was this crazy, fun, sexually adventurous girl and I was uh, I was a complete nerd. I uh, didn't lose my virginity until I was 19. Only had one sexual partner before her. She had had several girls and guys alike, sometimes in the same room. And that all just sounded just amazing to me. Like it was this brand new sexual uh, world and experience that I, I, I didn't even really kind of know existed in the real world, just in kind of like the you know, penthouse letters. Um so we got together, um, you know, we had wild, crazy, amazing sex. Um, and I thought to myself, like, and we talked about it, that maybe I could, you know, join her in these three ways and, and, you know, um, you know, just like just crazy sexual exploration. And, uh, she was all, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. You know, you're, you're, you're an amazing sex partner. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and do this. And, um, so I mean, College was college. I had to study really hard, um, and I really didn't have a whole lot of time for extracurriculars. Uh, but then we, uh, after college, got married, and uh, it all went away, everything, every last little bit of it. Um, now the sex is really vanilla, kind of boring. Um, she has absolutely no interest in anything she did in the past, and I feel like feel like I kind of missed out and I feel really terrible putting it that way. Um, but you know, now like my libido is just going crazy. Like I'm looking at other women. I'm wondering what, you know, would have been like if I didn't marry her. And these are all terrible things because I love her dearly. And I just, I don't know. I'm having a really hard time coming to terms with the fact that I completely missed out on my sexual, I don't know, awakening exploration. I don't know what to call it. I wish I could talk to your wife. It'd be interesting to hear from her why she was so different sexually before the marriage. There's been a lot of writing lately about porn culture and about you know the expectations of young straight guys uh, having been you know you know guys your age, ten years since the time you were a child, the time you were a teenager, having access to basically hardcore internet pornography. And that placing expectations on young women that they're going to perform like porn stars. And there may be some women out there who are, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, performing like porn stars because they feel that that's what they must do to attract a mate. And perhaps some of them are doing things that don't appeal to them, that they don't like. uh, And that as soon as they're married and have kids and they feel like they've nailed you down, uh, they stop doing because they just can't keep it up. They can't keep doing these things. at that pace or doing that variety of things because they were never really that interested in those things in the first place. If that was it, uh, I would say that you and your wife perhaps aren't sexually compatible, uh, that she presented to you in a way that was misleading. It's also possible though that your wife's bored, that you're doing something wrong, hearkening back to today's first caller and I can't tell you what that thing might be, uh, that there's some other issue in the relationship that is killing her desire for you and her desire to be the you know blue ribbon winning sexual athlete that she was when you met her 
Nothing kills uh, someone's, uh, you know, attraction to you, their, their sexual affections for you, their willingness to go that extra GGG mile for you more than being taken for granted. And it could be that you are taking her for granted in a way uh, that she is finding very dispiriting. So you guys really need to have it out. You know, is it one? Is it the other? Is it some combo platter? Are you taking her for granted? Is she taking you for granted? Perhaps couples counseling is in order. However, most couple counselors are really sex negative and regard the sex wanting partner as the problem. And if only everybody in this marriage could just stop wanting to have sex, then everything would be beautiful and brilliant. Um, so many therapists and sex counselors out there, uh, couples counselors out there, don't even seem to realize how sex negative they are. Uh, and that, as I've said, you know, if you marry someone, and it's a monogamous commitment. You do have a responsibility to milk that person. It is like acquiring a dairy cow and you have a responsibility to milk that fucking cow, particularly if you're the only farmer that's allowed to touch that fucking cow. You better milk that fucking cow. You don't mention kids. If there aren't kids, you are only 28. Presumably she is roughly your same age. It's not too late to change partners. Uh, it certainly isn't too late to just go for broke. Just throw it out there. Tell her you are miserable and unhappy and feeling cheated and misled and thinking about cheating. Just throw it all on the table and say exactly what it is you need this relationship to be sexually for you to stay and or stay faithful. And then see what she says. And really, you need to do this calmly uh, and is in as non-accusatory a tone as possible. The very calm, measured laying of cards on the table, you know, realizing that she might have a negative reaction and become very defensive. And then invite her to lay her cards on the table and invite her to lay them on the table as calmly as you've laid them on the table and really open yourself up to hearing her criticisms because it is possible that you're doing something wrong too or that you are the author in some way perhaps unknowingly, of your own misery. And maybe there's a way for you two to meet each other halfway. If there isn't, if she is very limited sexually, if she has no libido, you may want out of this marriage. She may want out of this marriage. There may be other people out there that you guys are better with than each other. She should, however, you know, before she pulls the plug, go to see a doctor, get her hormone levels checked. You know, women who have plummeting testosterone will have very low libidos. It could be her birth control. There could be many things that are going wrong. But you're not happy. I bet you she's not happy. And so the only – you really have to risk the relationship survival. Uh, you really have to be willing to bet the farm to fix things, to improve things. Uh, you have you know, perhaps a lifelong marriage to gain uh, if you lay it all out there and you know, see where that conversation goes. Oh, or you have uh, a way out, the first step out of this relationship, this marriage, if it isn't working for you. And to all those people out there who are now going, oh my God, sex is important. Fuck you. Sex is important in a long-term relationship. Sex is important in a marriage if you expect your spouse to have sex with no one but you. Sexual satisfaction matters. We put sex at the heart of our marriages, the heart of our relationship, sexual satisfaction, and then we turn around and declare when someone is sexually dissatisfied in that relationship that they're assholes and that sex isn't important. Well, if it isn't important, then your partner, if you're not interested, should be allowed to do it with somebody else who is. 
Hi, Dan. Um, so I have a question. My mom, I'm 26, and I'm in a relationship with a really great girl, and everything's been going wonderfully. We've been together for not long, about six months now. Um, but my mom recently got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and um, I'm in New York, and she's in Atlanta, and for complicated reasons, I can't move back, so I'm doing a lot of traveling, and this has been only in the past two weeks, but it's been um, really kind of difficult to try to navigate um, with our relationship with my girlfriend. Um, you know, she's trying to be very supportive, and I'm trying not to shut down, and I just wanted to know if you had any advice for dealing with um, situations like this um, where you may be losing a parent or just in the hard situations, the traveling is really hard um, for us to be apart a lot. I'm so sorry to hear that your mother has been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. That's terrible and you sound like you're holding up well, and I'm glad that you're being there for your mom as much as you can. And hopefully your new girlfriend is glad to see that you're being there for your mother right now as much as you can. Hopefully your new girlfriend isn't the one who's making you feel torn about this. And it really doesn't sound like she is. It sounds like you're giving this the full lesbian deep process that it doesn't require uh, – if I was dating somebody for six months and they, their parent, their mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer, I wouldn't want that person to regard me or our budding relationship as their first priority. And I would be frankly disturbed if they did. That would show a lack of judgment, uh, human feeling, balance uh, that would – have me thinking twice about getting into a relationship with this person because, you know, if we were together 20, 25, 30 years and I was diagnosed with stage four testicular cancer or breast cancer, men do get breast cancer, I would expect them to drop everything and tend to me because of the primacy of our relationship. And at six months in, I would, as the new boyfriend or new girlfriend, if I were a girl, Expect them to really put things with me on hold because of the primacy of their relationship uh, with their parent at that stage of their lives. So it sounds like your girlfriend isn't the one putting any pressure on you. It sounds like you're putting pressure on yourself or you're overthinking this. Date. Be as available to your new girlfriend and to your future as possible. And I don't just mean your future with her. I just mean your future when we have a parent who is – ill or dying, um, that is a very intense present, but we are still allowed to think to, think of, and build uh, our futures. And I don't think any parent worth the title would want their kids to put everything on hold while they tend it to them. Uh, so date your girlfriend when you are in New York and be there for your mother as much as humanly possible, even if that means you're not able to be there with your girlfriend as much as you or she would like six months into a relationship. And then when this crisis passes and let it be that your mother makes a miraculous recovery and it passes, you can pick up uh, the intensity uh, with your girlfriend that at six months or you know maybe a year in uh, would have been appropriate for a new relationship. You can kick it back up into high gear. But right now it has to idle in a low gear 
while you look after your, after your mom. And uh, best wishes to your mom. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old heterosexual female who has a question regarding my fantasies. For as long as I can remember, I always needed to imagine scenarios that pushed socially acceptable relationships in order to orgasm. The themes range from teacher-student to incest to age play, basically things that I view as not okay and would never want to actually experience sexually. Also, a consistent sub-theme in all these fantasies is that I am never present and nowhere to be found. It's like watching a movie with a cast of characters with people I've never met, with blurred faces and features. However, as of late, my fantasies have shifted in order for me to climax. This time, they involve my boyfriend, who I love, and he's in threesomes with our friends. And again, I'm not present and nowhere to be found. This really disturbs me because after the fact, when I think about it, I'm really kind of freaked out. And if this did happen, um, I'd be really uncomfortable. And I don't have any intention or interest in actually sharing my boyfriend or having threesomes in reality. So if you can help me decode this, I would appreciate it greatly. So you have these fantasies that really get you going, but you don't want to realize. Age play, group sex, things that turn your crank, but you actually don't want to have happen, right? Right. And I can tell you what that's about, uh, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I definitely... I mean, I I see a therapist, you know, and she... I don't feel like what she says actually helps me, so... So what'd she say? awesome to have... I mean, she just basically says that I'm an escapist, which uh, I guess is... I guess could be true. I don't know. Like, the fact that I'm not actually present in any of the situations. Uh, so you actually have these fantasies during sex. These aren't just masturbatory fantasies. You... Um, they're, they're both. Okay. Well, here's the thing, and here's what I think you may be replicating. Think back to when you were first becoming aware of sex. Uh, you're a, a, a child. You're 10, 11, 12 years old, and you, you finally realize what it is adults do. What was your initial uh, reaction? I mean, I guess it was something that, like, was forbidden or wasn't okay. I mean, I sort exactly. of, I remember... And not only wasn't it okay and it was forbidden, very much like your fantasies, it was also kind of revolting. It, 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 it elicited a disgust response. Like, there's no 12-year-old who realizes that when those sounds come from mom and dad's room or dad and dad's room, who isn't, doesn't want to throw up on some level, isn't like, ew, ew, oh, God, adults are, uh, that's awful, Right. Yeah, I mean, I remember, um, you know, a friend who had lived across the street, she had, um, you know, a cable box that was sort of rigged where you can get, like, you know, soft softcore porn channels. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, when our parents were at home, I would, like, run across the street so we could <laughs> watch it. And I remember being, like, thought it was very mysterious and, like, kind of in awe and or, like, seeing all these things for the first time. So, like, and, you know, nobody could know about it and... And reenacting it, was, it on Barbie and stuff. So, I mean, I guess that sort of makes sense. And so what I think is going on here for you, and there's a, you're not the only one out there who has fantasies that are appalling, you know, rape fantasies, incest fantasies, even just something as simple as, you know, a group sex scenario or a gangbang that they don't want to realize. But it, it, it elicits that early response of sort of revulsion, fascination, turn on, turn off all at once, that conflict. 
and it brings that all back, that queasy feeling in your stomach, right? And that is what these fantasies are about. You can swap out other fantasies. You could perhaps, if you think of it that way, that it's these, you know, these things are big and scary and a little, uh, you know, edgy and that's what elicits his response. You could find other ways to perhaps explore that impulse and and recreating that feeling with your partner in the room one-on-one. And you wouldn't have to necessarily then rely on these, you know, elaborate fantasy scenarios that kind of pull you out of the moment to get you going and get you right. off. Because if you think about, you know, what do these fantasies do physiologically? Like what response are they eliciting from you emotionally and from your body? And you can figure out a way to, particularly if you can talk to your partner about these fantasies, if you can talk to your partner about this aspect of your erotic imagination, your erotic inner life, you're likelier then to be able to be present in the room, even if what happens is you guys fantasize aloud together about these things while you're having monogamous, safe, one-on-one intercourse with nobody but you two in the room. You can summon up a cast of thousands. It can be Ben fucking her in there in your imagination. <laughs> and that's still good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would be totally hot. It can be Spartacus uh, in your imagination, and it's still a, a bond that you two share. It's still an intimacy uh, of yours, uh, the, uh, yours and the boyfriend's. But I, I, know, right. I know that there are other folks out there who have, quote unquote, the problem that you have. And I wouldn't say they're escapists. I would say that their early reaction to sex kind of carved a groove into them. And they're trying to recreate uh, on some level that flight, uh, or, you know, fuck or flight response, that revulsion uh, uh, you know, push me, pull me, uh, drawn toward it and disgusted by it, appalled by what adults do, but interested in becoming an adult so you can do it too. And it might be, you know, those more extreme things as you, you know, came into your full sexuality that recreated that early sexual sort of bells and whistles and you know, fireworks going off in your brain. And you can re- – you, that, that is something – it's not like eradicating a fetish. That is something that you can – you can find new ways to explore what these fantasies do for you with somebody one-on-one while being very present with that person. It may be risky sex, dangerous sex, outside sex. It may be BDSM. It may be, you know, doing things with him that feel taboo but that are monogamous one-on-one where you both feel safe and they're consensual – Blah blah right. blah, but you have to you have to like come out to him about the fact that you're on more of a roller coaster in your head than you are in the room, and you want to you want to change that with him for him because you want to be more present. I mean, I actually, I he, I actually we have talked about it. It was actually his idea that I called you, so because um, he's a very big fan. So um, <laughs> well, then he'll listen to this, and yes, my prescription so, is. My prescription is the next five times you guys have sex, you say aloud whatever it is you're thinking of. Right. And he can't say ew. He can't say what? He can't react negatively. He has to be like a good improv partner in an improv theater. He has to be like, yes, absolutely, yes. And play. And play with you and play with those images. So you seem to just kind of like go with it, bring it more the present and do some sort of like role playing or something along absolutely absolutely role playing fantasizing aloud together 
Absolutely. Do all of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Then it becomes instead of something, some private tape loop playing in your head and your head alone that makes you feel separate from him and guilty. It becomes a fantasy that you're sharing with him, even if the understanding is that this is a fantasy and will always be a fantasy. And I never actually want to act on this, but spinning this scenario totally turns my crank and I want you to spin it with me. Okay. And then work on finding things you can do with him that elicit that same, whoa, what the fuck response that these taboo fantasies elicit. And maybe that's, you know, outdoor sex, a little dangerous, whatever it is. I mean, I feel like all this totally makes sense. Like, growing up, I was totally, like, conservative family, like, Catholic. Like, I feel like it all, like, all of this is, like, totally, like, piecing together. And I feel like it's definitely not as mysterious. But I feel like, but now, though, that recently I have been, the fantasies have been, like, shifting and have been becoming, like, more about my boyfriend and then, you know, involving our friends and stuff. So it's, like, kind of, so is that also, too, just because it's, like, a forbidden fruit type of thing? Like, friends would, you know, or, like, not something I would want to happen or yeah, or, you know, sometimes we tiptoe up to realities by fantasizing about things for a good long time. And sometimes fantasizing about things for a good long time helps us examine it from every angle, helps us really think through the potential consequences emotionally and sexually. And then, you know, we've gamed it out so much that, you know, we realize after five or ten years of fantasizing about something that we're ready to act on it. And maybe that'll be true for you and maybe not. But I wouldn't rule it out. But it's, so not true. This, it's not true for you right now. Clearly, you don't want right. to do these things. But I would encourage you to like go there, fantasize about it, let your sexuality bloom and blossom. Don't be afraid of it. And don't feel like just because you thought of it that you have to do it. And don't feel like just because you thought of it and didn't do it that you somehow betrayed yourself. Just relax. You have a partner who's supportive, who's a fan of mine, uh, and is <laughs> kind of the right sort of partner for a person with your tape loop running in your head to have. I know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, he's definitely awesome. <laughs> but, okay. okay, so then my last question is this, though. With this specific, um, you know, with the friends thing, do I sort of role play with that? Like, do I tell him, like, who the friends are? Because I felt like, because he was like, who are the friends? And I was like, no, I will not give you the names. Because I feel like we'll be at a party and it'll be like, sort of like, we'll all be sitting around and be like, huh? You know, like, we're going to give him the eyes. Like, what were you thinking about? You know, so I thought it would be kind of like weird. But so do I release the information of like, who's involved? And then do we like, use the information? Why in not? Our Why not? Private? Why not? Or Why not? What, what's to be gained by withholding it? And what are you afraid will happen if you share that information with him? You know, uh, withholding it means now he's looking at every single person you know, thinking, I wonder if it's him, whenever it's her. And sharing it just I, makes it very, a little more specific. And so long as you've shared it with the understanding that you have no desire at this time to act on this and this not a uh, you know, permission slip for him to go out and arrange a threesome or anything else, right. there's no harm in it. Right. And how much more exciting would it be for you if, say, you shared with him that one of the people was X and then you and he are rolling around and he says, close your eyes and imagine I'm X and I'm doing this to you and I'm not going to talk so you can just picture X. Like, that would be hot, even if X isn't in the room. You're so right. I need to <laughs> be more adventurous. 
Go for it. And from, you know, from one repressed former young uh, Catholic just coming into his sexuality to another, go for it. Uh, you have nothing awesome. uh, you have nothing to lose so long as you have a partner who respects you and is willing to take it slow, isn't going to rush you, isn't going to isn't going to abuse you uh, in any way right. or take advantage of this information in any way. It sounds like you've got that kind of partner, so open up to him. Good luck. Like some- Call us back in six months. Let us know how it went. All right, I shall. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the emotional tampon in Podcast 232. In addition to your excellent advice on cutting off contact with her, he should keep her number in his phone, but change her name to something else like psychopath, enemy, asshole, bitch, or my usual shit sandwich. And every time she calls, He'll remember why he isn't taking her crap anymore. Hey, Dan, this is about the caller in Podcast 229 who was ready to go off to the bathhouse and have anonymous sex with people, and it sounded like you talked him out of it, which is awesome. Thank you so much. One thing I wanted to suggest, though, for this or anyone else that has a proclivity that might be possibly dangerous is that if they find the right person, they could role play. I know uh, some couples who pick each other up in lounges from time to time. They act like they're strangers. They get a hotel room. They go at it. And uh, they get their yayas out without risking their health. Just a thought. Thanks. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to episode 231 where the uh, the guy's boyfriend was afraid to uh, top him in kinky sex because he was afraid of laughing. Um, the thing is, he needs to bear in mind that uh, some of BDSM is kind of ridiculous and it is kind of okay to laugh about it even in the moment. The thing is that uh, my first time uh, topping my boy, uh, having him bent over the couch ready to get spanked, for, the, for, for a moment I just stood there thinking, oh my God, I don't even know if I can actually do this. And I felt really ridiculous uh, and it was kind of embarrassing. Uh, but I took a deep breath and did it anyway and I fucking loved it. And I've gotten so much better at it over time. Uh, but what you need to keep in mind is like, if you're going to be the top, uh, you could just fucking leave that bitch tied to a bed and leave the room if you need to laugh about it for a few minutes. Or, you know, put a hood on him and, like, plug his ears like you sentry that version so he can't even look at you or, or hear you laughing. Um, you're in charge, so if you need to time out to get back in the zone, then you do it. And what is he going to do, fucking complain about it? Uh, you know, he wants what you have to give him, so if he has to wait for it, that's that's your prerogative. You do whatever you want. Just, you know, take your time uh, and take a fucking show about it because it's just fun and games. Don't worry. Uh, okay, great. Thanks, Dan. Bye. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a comment or question for a future show, give us a buzz. You download us every week at thestranger.com. You can also comment on the podcast at thestranger.com slash lovecast. And, of course, the Savage Love app is available for iPhone and Android, where you get the Savage Love letter of the day delivered to you and your phone, wherever you are in the world. world, world. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. Me and the tech savvy at-risk youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment. Thanks for downloading.